You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. If you've spent any time online in the last uh, couple of months, if you spend any time on Twitter, if you follow lots of queer people, if you are a queer person on Twitter, you've no doubt uh, witnessed some skirmishes in the, I'm going to say it, trigger warning, here goes, tranny wars. Uh, some writers, trans writers, uh, some social justice Twitter warriors went after RuPaul, uh, who hosts RuPaul's Drag Race, for using tranny on his show and in a segment using a female or she-male as a, a joking segment where contestants had to guess whether they were looking at a picture of a cis woman uh, or they were looking at a picture of a drag queen, a she-male. And there was some upset over this, and there's a longstanding segment on Ruth's show called You've Got She-Male, where she sends a message to contestants. If you watch the show, you know all of this, but some of you don't watch the show. Uh, and Glad got involved, and, and Rue was raked over the coals, and Logo apologized uh, for hate speech and deleted the female or shemale segment or that whole show from their archive and ended the you've got shemale part of RuPaul's Drag Race. And Rue refused to take this lying down, and she pushed back, and she argued that uh, she had been a tranny for 30-plus years, and tranny did not just mean transgendered, that tranny also meant transvestite, that it was widely used by uh, people in the drag scene, by people who engaged in kind of gender-bending, uh, club nighty shit, but people like Rue, right, and her crew, going back to the limelight and the club kid days in New York City in the 80s. And that that was a word that Rue uh, owned, that she used to apply to herself, that she used affectionately, and she wasn't going to apologize for using it. Uh, and this kind of blew up. And then Hecklina, who's a drag queen in San Francisco, who hosts a regular club night called Tranny Shack, announced that she was changing the name of Tranny Shack, not because she wanted to or necessarily thought she should or should have to, but because she was sick of the grief that she was getting from a small group of young, angry trans activists who felt that Tranny Shack uh, was hate speech. And there's been a lot of pushback, a lot of fighting. Justin Bond, mix Justin Bond, wrote a big Facebook post about why I think Justin's preferred pronoun is ZYZ, uh, thought this was very silly and not the real fight. Other people in the trans community jumped in to defend Rue, Calpurnia Adams, Andrea James, blah, blah, blah. Became a big war. I'm uh, an early casualty in the tranny wars. I was glitter bombed a few times in 2011 and it was put to me that I had to stop using the word tranny in my column uh, and in my public appearances when we can do Savage Love Live or on uh, the podcast because tranny was a hate term and it wasn't my term to use or reclaim. And, you know, my point, the column is 23 years old. When I started the column in the early 90s, Queer Nation was still a thing. And one of Queer Nation's goals was reclaiming hate terms. So they couldn't use these things as hate terms if we used them as terms of endearment and terms of empowerment. So Queer Nation, just its name was radical. Queer now is sort of accepted as I always say queer genus and everything else species. You're queer gay. You're queer dyke. You're queer bi. Like queer is the word that is all of ours and means all of us in the sexual minority community and the gender nonconforming community or whatever else you want to call it, trans community. And queer is this unifier. But queer was insanely divisive in uh, the very early 90s, late 80s when Queer Nation came along. Uh, Queer Nation would march around carrying signs that said faggot, dyke, 
queer, sissy, tranny say it. And so when I started Savage Love, uh, I decided uh, when we were creating this column, creating this new thing, a new kind of advice column written for straight people by a queer person, that I would let people use the language that they used when they talked about themselves. I would let people use the language that they were comfortable using. I would let people use the language you use when you talk about sex with your friends. And so faggot, dyke, queer, sissy, tranny, breeder, all those words were in Savage Love. Breeder, yes, is our hate term for straight people. Well, you could call it a hate term. You could call it an acknowledgement of your utility. We reproduce ourselves, most of us queers, through your bodies, straight people. Thank you very much. You are the cocoons. We are the butterflies. And another thing that I did with the column to really like embrace this queer nation ethos was every letter began. Every letter to me had a salutation at the beginning, just like Dear Abby's column. Dear Abby began every letter. My column, hey, faggot. Readers called me faggot at my invitation. Some readers would write me and say, I will not use that salutation, and I would run their letters and put it on it anyway. I would make them call me faggot. And what this demonstrated, I thought, and pretty effectively, was that it wasn't the word that was hateful all by itself. It was intent that made a word hateful. Because some readers would say, hey, faggot, I love you. I love your column. I love your advice. You're so smart. Help me. Here's my problem. And some readers would write in and say, hey, faggot, you're a disgusting, cocksucking pervert. I would run those letters side by side. And it showed that in you know, the first letter writer's mouth or pen or laptop or typewriter, faggot was a compliment. And in the second writer's mouth, letter, typewriter, faggot was an insult and the worst insult. Intent, it makes a word hateful. But in 2011, I stopped using tranny at the insistence of a very vocal uh, and passionate and just coming into its own segment of the trans community that wanted to end the usage of that word. Uh, but in 2011, in deference to the passions uh, and in a desire not to have jars of glitter thrown at my face from 10 feet away by angry nutbags, I stopped using tranny. Still use dyke, still use faggot, still use sissy, still use homo, still use breeder, our hate word for you, straight people, we love you. But tranny, I no longer use in the column. Only use tranny now when I talk about tranny, the word, talk about the issues around using it, talk about why you shouldn't use it. Trans people who object to the use of the word will argue and argue passionately and to some minds very persuasively that this is the word that is hurled at them as they are physically assaulted, as they are bashed, um, and as they are murdered. And trans people are subjected to horrific violence in our culture, not just physical violence. Trans people are subjected to all sorts of different kinds of violence, socioeconomic violence. And they have an argument, legit argument, that perhaps this word, because of the degree of violence uh, that the trans community is subjected to, perhaps should be walled off from those other words. Although there are plenty of gay people who've been bashed, bashed to death while the word faggot was being thrown in their faces. All of this brings us to the University of Chicago and the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where I made an appearance. Uh, Anna Marie Cox, the writer uh, for The Guardian, a columnist for The Guardian on United States issues, um, Dowager Wonkat, she was the original blogger at Wonkat um, and really made her bones writing Wonkat and made Wonkat uh, what it is, not what it is today. There's a great new crew at Wonkat. Hey, Rebecca. Um, and Wonkat is still awesome. Even after Anna moved on, Wonkat is actually amazing. And you should go read Wonkat. All who read not Wonkat are fools. But Anna, it was a visiting fellow at the Institute of Politics, invited me to come uh, and talk about social media, to talk about left-wing uh, queer activism, to talk about the It Gets Better campaign, to talk about the Santorum neologism, um, just to talk about what I've done with my writing career in kind of a social activism space and a political space. 
And here's the thing about an Institute of Politics seminar, which is what I was invited to UC to do. It's off the record. It is confidential. Everyone who is in the room agrees that what is said, what was discussed will not leave that room. And the reason an Institute of Politics and Harvard has one, some other universities, the reason they have these confidentiality rules about these small seminars for their students is so that media types and politicians who are normally, particularly politicians, normally so guarded and so careful about what they say in public, lest they commit a gaffe. Michael Kinsley's famous definition of a gap is a politician saying what he actually thinks in public um, to avoid, you know, getting caught up on gaps. It's off the record. No blogging, no tweeting, no writing, no speaking publicly about what happened in this room, about the conversations so that people feel free, these politicians and media types, to really speak in an unguarded, unfiltered way to these students, to their benefit. So I was invited there to speak and I spoke. Um, and Anna asked me about the T-word, about tranny, about my usage, about the controversy around my usage of it. And I talked about it as I have just talked about it to you. What's problematic about it? Why I stopped using it? Um, the, the debate around it. And partway through this conversation, uh, someone in the room objected to my use of the T-slur. No longer the T-word. It is now the T-slur. I missed that memo. Still the N-word, I guess. I haven't heard N-slur yet. I expect I will momentarily. But now it is the T-slur, no longer the T-word. That is too neutral. Uh, and demanded that I stop using it, lest I traumatize folks in the room. And I blanched at this request because I thought it was infantilizing and silly. I thought it was condescending. I thought that me saying T-slur in place of tranny for instance, me saying, yeah, I use dyke, faggot, queer, sissy, breeder, and T-slur in my column. If I would said that in conversation, it makes me seem silly. And it just forces, it unloads the responsibility for speaking the word onto the hearer. When I say T-slur in that context, I'm not calling someone that word. I am using it to discuss that word. When I use T-slur, I'm just offloading the responsibility to say it out loud to the person listening to me. You have to say it in your head. You say it. To yourself, quietly. What difference does that make? That was my point. And we got into it. We were arguing. One of the arguments this person made was that I am not trans myself, so it is not my word to use at all, ever. It's not my word to reclaim. It's not my word to even use in the context that I was using it. And I asked then if I was allowed to use dyke and sissy, seeing as I am not a lesbian and not particularly effeminate most of the time. And after a moment's hesitation, a pause, this person looked at me and said, yes, you can use those words. Welcome to college. <laughs> Welcome to academia. I now know what you guys suffer out there, you profs, you TAs, you visiting lecturers, you fellows. We have now reached a point in college where profs, the adults in the room, for lack of a better term, have to clear the vocabulary with first-year students, have to ask their permission and I laughed. I believe I laughed because I thought that was pretty funny that even though I'm not a lesbian, even though I'm not effeminate, I am allowed to use those words by someone who just told me that I'm not allowed to use some other word because I am not that thing myself. This person got flustered. Anna also jumped in and talked about when she used tranny as a joke and why she stopped and when she realized it was problematic and how she learned to stop using tranny. And this person got so upset that we continued – we disagreed with this person about this use and continued to use it because we disagreed. Basically, th this person got so upset that when this person said jump, Anna Marie Cox and I didn't say how high. 
We disagreed and continued. And this person then left the room in tears, as one does when one doesn't get one's way in college. The only reason I'm talking about all this publicly, I agreed to the confidentiality thing going into this talk. The only reason I am talking about this publicly, the only reason why I've been given permission basically from UC to talk about this publicly is because this student and another student who uh, lit into me during this confidential seminar started an online petition, went to the student paper claiming that I had committed a hate crime by continuing to use the word tranny after I had been asked to stop. And this went to Drudge. This went to the National Review. This went to Glenn Beck's radio program. This went to uh, Fire. This went everywhere. It's all over the gay blog. So this confidential off-the-record seminar is now very much non-confidential and on the record. And I am an anti-trans bigot because I used tranny in this context talking about tranny being controversial. And now I've used tranny about 7,000 times on the top of this program. There will probably be online shortly an edited version of this conversation where all you hear is tranny, 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 to prove that I am a bigot who uses the word tranny constantly. This is difficult for me to wrap my head around that I am sort of along with RuPaul, one of America's highest profile anti-trans bigots. Like the the real problem for the trans community is not the anti-trans hate speech that's pumped into the discourse daily at Fox News. It is not the bashings. It is not the violence. It is gay men and drag queens. We are We are the real enemies. We are the real problem. And it's hard for me to really accept this because I don't know, in the last few weeks before I went to UC, I curated a speaker series for the Penn World Literary Festival in New York City. Uh, a speaker series called Obsession that had five speakers. One of those speakers was a trans woman. I co-produced a video series profiling uh, prominent uh, LGBT Americans. And one of those people that we profiled in that video series is a trans woman. I had Buck Angel on the podcast. I had M. Drew Levisar in the column giving advice to people who are dating people who are trans uh, about loving them through their transitions. Uh, And, just seems to me that if this is how anti-trans bigots behaved, that anti-trans bigotry wouldn't be such a problem for the trans community. But if you go online, if you read the bile on some trans nutcase blogs, and I say trans nutcase because not all trans people are nutcases. I'm drawing a distinction between trans people and the nutcase variety, just as I draw that distinction between faggots and batshit crazy fucked up faggots, right? You read some of the bile out there, anything I do that is arguably apparently on its surface pro-trans is just cover for my anti-trans bigotry. So really there's no winning. If I do the right thing, it's cover for my anti-trans bigotry. If I do the wrong thing, even once, even 10, 12 years ago, that's proof of my anti-trans bigotry. It's really through the looking glass shit here and I'm going to prove it now and, and wind up this conversation. But before I can get to this detail, let's play Let's Pretend for just a second. Let's pretend I'm standing in line at a Starbucks with a straight friend and we're having an animated chat. And unbeknownst to us, there are two trans people standing behind us in line and let's say they're trans activists with significant social media presences and they overhear me tell my straight friend that I just met this trans person earlier that same day at a seminar and let's say I say out loud – in full hearing of these trans people behind me in line, oh, I got into an argument with it. I say that to my cishet friend. It was so full of shit. 
it insisted that I was in the wrong. And you should have seen the look on its face when I tried to engage it in a conversation about the point it was making. Because, man, did it ever have its head up its ass. In less time than it would take me to order my tea, the trans activist behind us in line would be tweeting out quotes, tweeting out what I was saying and calling for my head and launching an online petition condemning the hate speech they were overhearing me use in line at Starbucks because referring to a trans person as it, not he or she or Zim or Zer or them or there, but it, a thing, an object is the worst thing you can call a trans person after tranny. Some would argue that it is worse than tranny because at least tranny is sometimes used uh, by trans people affectionately or ironically. You know, I've heard shock jocks and bigots and bashers dehumanize trans people by calling them it. But I have never in my life heard a trans person refer to another trans person as it. Not in jest, not as a put down, not once, not ironically, never ever, never it. I have tweeted and blogged and, and reblogged and quoted people objecting to those shock jocks and bigots and Fox News personalities who call trans people it. Objects. Things. That is dehumanizing. And it is anti-trans hate speech to call a trans person it. Join me, won't you, through the looking glass? After the person who got so upset that Anna Marie Cox and I were using tranny in this way that we were using to discuss the word itself, not to sling it around, not to call anyone, not to call that person that word. After this person left, we continued to speak for a second about what just happened. And Anna very tactfully said that, you know, passions run high. And Anna used a pronoun to refer to this person. And this person's friend who had stayed behind jumped in to correct Anna that the person who was so upset about us using tranny, this person's pronoun preference was it. This person who is so upset at us for using tranny in that context has chosen as this person's pronoun preference an anti-trans slur, a word that if anybody overheard Anna and I referring to this person as without being previously informed that this is this person's pronoun preference, we would be accused of engaging in anti-trans hate speech. This is game-playing childish bullshit. This is really all you need to know about what happened at UC if you've been following it online. There are some folks out there who are looking for things to be upset about. Apparently, these people who came to my seminar at UC, uh, objected to my being there, said that my presence on campus was an attack, said that I was an anti-trans bigot. And then they came to the talk anyway, that they didn't have to come to. It wasn't required. They came to be offended and they got what they came for. They got what they wanted, which was to be offended. And then they ran around online accusing me of hate speech and hate crimes, which went everywhere up to and including the Drudge Report. So I felt I should respond. But all you need to know, civilians, casual listeners, the, the key to this, how you know that this person is playing games, this person who objected to are using the T-slur, is that this person has chosen an alternate T-slur. In conclusion, I want to say that I'm a supporter of the trans community, a supporter of trans people, have been for a long time, and will continue to be a supporter, despite the best efforts of some to cast me as an anti-trans bigot. Coming up on the Magnum, Dr. Jared Baton talking about Truveda, the semi-controversial drug that prevents HIV infection, plus your calls, your questions, and your comments. Hey, Dan. I just had an experience. I had sex with one of my straight friends. I'm a 22-year-old gay man in L.A., 
And um, I'm really good friends with his girlfriend. And uh, I knew that they were in an open relationship. But he told his girlfriend, and now his girlfriend is just completely ignoring me. So I just want to know what your thoughts are on just in general having sex with your friends and if I was in the wrong here by hooking up with my straight friend, even though I knew that they were in an open relationship. But it seems like I really kind of betrayed her trust because we were really good friends. There seem to be really two questions here. You ask for my feelings in general about having sex with friends, but there's also the issue of having sex with a friend's boyfriend, which is a whole other issue. Um, it is possible for there to be friends with benefits. We've talked about that on the show. I think it's possible for friends to have really good and uh, really intimate and really loving sex uh, and for that to be productive and healthy for all involved. The issue, however, of having sex with a friend's boyfriend is different. There's there's a whole other layer there. Like if you're a regular listener, you know uh, that all monogamous relationships are exactly alike when it comes to the sex issue. These are two people who only have sex with each other. But all non-monogamous relationships are snowflakes. They're all so fucking different. Um, it can be anything from a DADT policy to uh, we tell each other everything um, to I have to get permission in advance uh, as a way to tamp it down often. Um to you can sleep with anybody you want to outside of the relationship so long as it's no one within our social circle, no one I have to interact with regularly. Uh, you know, Some people who have open relationships want to maintain the appearance of social monogamy where they're perceived to be monogamous even if they're not technically sexually monogamous. So fucking a friend, someone in their social circle, someone close to them explodes that socially monogamous appearance. So you know, did you fuck up? Clearly you fucked up. Clearly the friend whose boyfriend you fucked – Regardless of the fact that they're in an open relationship, there was something about it being you that pissed her off or violated the terms of their agreement around openness. And I think you might have known that going in because when it comes to fucking not a friend but fucking the boyfriend or girlfriend of a friend, it's a good policy to check in with that friend in advance. It's a good policy when that boy hit on you to say, is Marsha okay with this? And if he said, oh, yeah, and you said, okay, well, let me check with Marsha, and he freaked out, then clearly Marsha's not going to be okay with it. But she would probably have appreciated a heads up. The least you can do now is to give her the apology that she may actually rightfully deserve because you stepped on something here. And I think the boyfriend, Marsha's boyfriend, I'm giving her the name Marsha. We don't know if she's a Marsha. But Marsha's boyfriend is more culpable than you are. But you probably made a self-serving assumption about this will be okay because you really wanted to get into his pants and it wasn't okay. And so now you need to go to Marsha and say, I'm really sorry. thought you guys were like in an open relationship. I thought this would be cool um, and I apologize. I apologize. I feel bad because uh, I didn't mean to hurt you or fuck up our friendship and I hope we can put this uh, behind us. But Marsha deserves a phone call from you and an apology if you're a youngster and you don't call people, she deserves an extended text from you and an explanation and an apology. Uh, and that gesture, hopefully, will begin to patch things up between you and your friend. Hey, Dan. I'm a bi girl getting out of a long-term relationship, and I have what I guess you would call a breakup etiquette question. My relationship was about 11 and a half years. We were engaged for about the latter five of those. Um, I broke up with him on Valentine's night when everything kind of hit the fan. There are a host of reasons for the breakup, uh, a few of which include the fact that he's a self-professed pathological liar 
who controlled and manipulated me for years. And he even charged a sizable debt under my name, which he lied about. Uh, long story short, before Christmas last year, I lost the ring. Literally fell off of my hand at a job, and I could never find it. Well, for about the last three really turbulent months, we've still lived together because he couldn't afford the place on his own, and I told him I just wouldn't leave him screwed. However, due to his girlfriend now living in the place and also his treatment of me uh, becoming extremely emotionally abusive, including telling me several times that he wished I would die, um, I'm moving out. But here's the kicker. He says I owe him $1,800 for the ring. I don't feel I should have to pay him for it, especially him knowing that I work two jobs just to make ends meet and I'm incurring a huge moving expense. So what do you think? Am I obligated to pay for the ring given his treatment of me? Should I even pay for the ring? I did a little Googling on your behalf. Uh, apparently there's no Google where you are right now. There are lots of cases where after the end of an engagement, somebody breaks off the engagement. The male fiancé typically sues the female ex for the ring, wants the ring back. Uh, in some cases, very expensive heirloom rings with giant massive diamonds on them. Not the case here if it's an $1,800 ring we're talking about. Um, and it seems that in some states you are obligated to return the ring. In some states you could be financially on the hook for the ring if you broke the engagement off and it sounds like you did. Uh, so I don't know where you are but you might want to do a quick Google yourself. All that said uh, – I would, if I were in your shoes, tell him to go fuck himself, his pathological lying, uh, emotionally abusive, uh, you should go die self. Just tell him to go fuck himself and that if he really thinks that you owe him $1,800 for this cheap and lousy engagement ring uh, that you lost at work, that he can hire a lawyer and sue you for it and that will cost him so much more than the 1800 bucks he'll get in the end if he is successful in this small claims court. Or you could both go on Judge Judy together for free, uh, but you don't have to pay him for that ring. And he's not going to come after you all lawyered up looking for that ring. He's just being an asshole, which it sounds like he's good at and has always been. And you don't have to pay an asshole $1,800 to go away. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old queer woman in Seattle, and I have a question for you about something that one of my coworkers did. She is a new coworker, and the other, it was a couple weeks ago, she told me that one of our coworkers is gay. Uh, it's another new coworker, and she was talking to me about his partner. And I didn't know that the coworker was gay. Um, I don't care that the coworker is gay, but at the same time, I sort of felt like that was information that I should have gotten from that coworker instead of from this other coworker who didn't know that I was queer and since I didn't know this other person was queer. I don't know. I just kind of felt like it wasn't her thing to kind of come out on his behalf to me. Um, so I sort of felt like it was inappropriate for her to do that, but then I thought, well, if if it's no big deal for someone to be queer, then why should it matter how I found out? I don't know. I just feel a little bit conflicted about it, and I find myself being annoyed at the coworker who told me that this other coworker was gay, just because I feel like, well, that wasn't really yours to tell anybody, and now I kind of don't want to tell you anything about my life, because what are you going to go repeating to other people that maybe I don't want you to? Um, so anyway, I would just love your perspective on whether or not that was an appropriate or inappropriate thing for her to have done. I guess it depends. If your coworker uh, who told you that this other coworker was gay and presumably out about being gay 
presented this as very juicy gossip and dirt on a fellow coworker, well, then that's a little fucked up. Um, if you know your other coworker had come out to this coworker uh, privately and asked her to be discreet and said explicitly he didn't yet feel comfortable being out to everyone at work, and she ran around telling people, yeah, that's fucked up. But if the gay coworker is openly gay, if he's completely out about it, if he's not trying to hide it, if he's not swearing anyone to secrecy, then she's just relaying a completely neutral fact about him. And working that into conversation is no more offensive than her mentioning that, you know, he's engaged to be married and she just met his fiance if he were straight. So that one voice in your head that's telling you it's no big deal, listen to that voice. It's very likely not a big deal and you shouldn't make it a big deal. And the kind of you know, values uh, that you're invoking here, which is that that coming out to somebody, even a work environment or any other environment, is so monumental and personal and potentially consequential a step that everyone's process and privacy has to be honored. Da, 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 da. That's very 30 years ago. It's very 20 years ago. If he's out and he's gay and he's completely out and he's out to everyone in his life and he's out at work, then that is a fact that can precede him naturally as the fact that some people are straight precedes them naturally. You talk about coworkers. Oh, I met his wife. You didn't out him as straight. Because you met his wife. Fact. Married man that we work with. Fact. Neutral fact. Worked into conversation casually and not in a dirt or gossip way. I met his boyfriend. His boyfriend seemed really nice. Neutral fact. Worked into conversation. She didn't out him. He is out. That's the difference. And if she didn't violate a confidence in any way, she wasn't sworn to secrecy again, then she did nothing wrong, and you need to let it go. Hey, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old guy from the Midwest, and I'm happily married. My wife is the most amazing person in the world. And uh, thanks to your show, I got up the courage to ask her to fuck my ass with a strap-on dildo. And uh, she has fucked me three times now, and it is completely amazing. And I love every minute of it. And so I wanted to thank you for uh, giving me the courage to uh, to ask her. Because uh, if it weren't for, for your support and all the good advice you give on your show, then that never would have happened. And I never would have had the joy that I experienced. Um, I do have a question, though. Well, two questions. What can I do to help her enjoy it more? Because so far... Uh, she says she enjoys it because of how it makes me feel. So I wonder if you have any recommendations for how I can I can get her involved in that a little bit, or you know, have her more get more physical pleasure instead of just emotional pleasure. And then secondarily, what should we do next? Because that was awesome, and I would really love to hear what you recommend that we move on to. Thanks, Dan. First, you're welcome, and your fucked ass is welcome. Uh, as for her pleasure, there are certain uh, kinds of strap-ons that incorporate in the base of the dildo that if, is, if your wife is wearing uh, a dildo harness, is you know pulled up against her vulva and near her clit that have vibrators built into them that have vibrating attachments that you can put over the top. There are also double dildos that can strap on where the – basically it's a double-edged dildo but with a flared center. So she can stick – one end of it into herself, she can be vaginally penetrated, and then anally penetrate you with the dildo that's sticking way the fuck out. Go to babeland.com, go to Smitten Kitten, go to Grand Opening, go to Good Vibrations. There's lots of really great uh, female-owned, female-run, sex-positive sex toy stores out there where you can see all of your strap-on dildo options, uh, including the vibrating ones, including the ones where she can be penetrated as she's penetrating you, and as she grinds on you, 
uh, and, you know, pivots her hips a little bit and moves against you, the dildo that's in her will also be moving and providing her with pleasure. Combine that with the vibrating attachment and she's going to enjoy that ass fucking just as much, if not more, than you are. As for what next to move on to, that is the impossible question. Uh, I don't know. I could decide cuckolding. I think your wife should go fuck somebody else and you should have to eat her pussy afterwards. Ta-da! Enjoy that. You can't assign a kink or a pursuit or a next step to anyone because turn-ons, kinks, uh, you know, what works for two people, all that is so subjective and so personal um, that there's nothing that I can do from the outside. People always ask me when I go to college, anywhere I go, the ideal sex toy, what's, what's the ultimate, what sex toy? And the answer is always, you know, one man's roll of duct tape is a roll of duct tape and another man's like insanely sexy sex toy. It just is so personal. You have to look within, ask yourself, what is it about pegging? What is it about getting fucked in the ass of that strap on dildo that really fucking makes your head explode? That, that, that gave you such pleasure? Is it just the physical sensations of the ass fucking? Well, there's a million different kinds of ass play that you can move on to a million different kinds of toys. Uh, if it is the inversion of, of, of roles that she's fucking you, that the woman is fucking the man, that the, the, the gender expectations and the uh, assumptions are all thrown out the window. There are a million ways to explore that from erotic cross-dressing to dom sub stuff to femdom to, to indeed cuckolding again, because that is a shattering of certain gender roles and expectations and, and ideas about the way women are supposed to be an act or, uh, or be controlled in a traditional opposite sex relationship uh, or women's sexuality is supposed to be limited in a traditional opposite sex relationship. So I can't tell you, you need to think about what it was that worked so well for you about that ass fucking and then find the other things in that same vein and go for it and have fun and good for you that you had the courage to ask and good for your wife that she had the uh, GGG spirit to give. Hi, Dan. I am calling because I've been given a very tempting offer to go to the Caribbean and I won't have to pay for my plane ticket or my lodging. However, the offer is from a man who I'm pretty sure wants to fuck me. About 99% sure. And he's a good friend of mine, and I don't want to fuck him. Additionally, he holds an authority position where I work. And I'm no longer, I'm going to be moving, and I've been promoted, but he actually has to sign off on the paperwork to officially promote me, and he's like, saying that he will buy me a plane ticket after he signs off on the paperwork so that there's no conflict of interest. I've never been physical with him before. I know some of the people where he is going to be in the Caribbean who I would get along well with, and so it would be kind of a social trip in my mind. And it's a free trip to the Caribbean, and I really want to go. So my question is, should I tell him that before I accept the offer, because I haven't officially, should I tell him that I am interested in a platonic relationship with him and, you know, maybe apologize for jumping to conclusions, even though he's done things that, you know, it's pretty obvious. But anyway, um, or do I take the offer and just don't say anything? Or do I decline the offer because... And, and just don't tell him why. Just you know, say it's a really nice offer, but it's way too generous. So he offered to sign off on the paperwork 
before buying your ticket to the Caribbean. He knows this is creepy and manipulative. He knows it's put you in this awkward position where it doesn't feel like a free and easy breezy choice for you. Um, he's acknowledging the implicit kind of quid pro quo pressure in the very offer. And that's not okay for him in a power position at work, for you being uh, under his authority, for your future being in his hands and for him to creepily reference the whole power imbalance and the dynamic of this in this way. I don't know. It makes me not trust him. It makes me wonder whether he would sign off on the paperwork before buying the ticket or just tell you that he had signed off on the paperwork before buying you the ticket. My advice for you in this situation, considering your career uh, and the rest of your life uh, and your self-respect, is to make up some big fucking excuse about why you cannot accompany him, why that time doesn't work, why the trip doesn't work, to let him think that perhaps the circumstances were different, you might have gone, and to tell him you have to be there for your sister's bat mitzvah for a friend's wedding, for a something that you have a conflict that cannot be gotten out of uh, and tell him you hope he has a grand time in the Caribbean and you know some people there and if you blah, 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 whatever. Make up an excuse that kind of exonerates you where it's not you saying I wouldn't go to the Caribbean with you if you were the last man on earth. And it's not you allowing him to think that maybe if he can get you there after signing off on your promotion, after buying you this ticket with the island breezes and the cocktails that maybe then – he can make the play for you that he's been subtly making at work in an environment where you'd be much more inclined to jump into the sack with him. You know that's never going to happen, right? You know you are never going to fuck this dude. He doesn't know you're never going to fuck this dude because of workplace discrimination, because of his power position over you and this really inappropriate offer. He may think that he has a chance. And it is true that it could fuck up your future career plans if you tell him straight up he has no chance. So I'm not sure what to tell you. I want to tell you to tell him straight up he has no chance, but I don't want to fuck your career up. But I don't think women should have to work under these kinds of pressures and these kinds of demands and these kinds of creepy plays, their affections and the rest of them. I would game it out if I were you. I would play games. He's playing games with you. You play games back with him. Have a conflict. Don't be able to go. Document fucking everything. Write it all down. Tell some friends what's going on. Save all the emails if there have been email exchanges about it, particularly any emails where he acknowledged that it was creepy of him to make the offer by assuring you that he would only buy the ticket after signing off on your promotion because if he does retaliate, if this does come to shit – if he does fuck up or deny your promotion after you tell him you're not going, then you sue. Hi, Dan. This is a 28-year-old gay guy living on the East Coast. And I have noticed for like the last two years or so that it is hard for me to keep it hard, an erection, when I'm having sex unless I am on my back, flat on my back. And that is the way I'm obviously masturbate. And so I guess I'm wondering if this is something that I should go to a doctor about. 
and maybe you know it's some kind of a medical issue or if it's something that I need to retrain my dick to like if I need to start masturbating standing up or something any help you could provide would be well appreciated the way you masturbate can carve a deep groove into your erotic psyche. There is muscle memory. There is sense memory. There's strong and powerful associations uh, can get locked into place. And this isn't a problem for everyone. A lot of people masturbate in a particular position and then they jump into another one when they're having partnered sex and they, they're good to go. It's not a problem. Uh, but – for you, it's apparently a problem and, and you've identified the source. You're in a certain and particular position when you masturbate. Your dick, your unconscious mind associates that position with hardness and there's a feedback loop there that's powerful that keeps your dick, your tinkerbell between your legs, alive and hard and throbbing and lit. Uh, you have to break that association and you know what to do. You could go talk to a doctor about this. A doctor is going to look at you blankly or tell you exactly what I'm telling you now. You need to stop masturbating in that position. You need to create new and powerful associations so that when you're with someone who doesn't want you just laying there flat on your back the whole time, uh, that your dick is still present and good to go and good to blow and good to <laughs> back up onto. So my prescription for you, although I'm not a doctor – is that way you've been masturbating for what, 15 years now? You're 28 years old, masturbating since you were 12 or 13 years old. That position that you've been masturbating in, I forbid you going forward to masturbate in that position. Kneel up in your bed when you masturbate. Masturbate in the shower. Stand. Get into different crazy-ass positions and stroke and stroke and stroke. And when you prove to yourself that your dick can work in all of these different positions, when you carve new grooves into yourself subconsciously, you create new muscle memories, new sense memories, your dick won't abandon you in the moment uh, when you're having partnered sex. So force the issue on your dick. Clearly communicate to your dick that things are going to be different from here on out. And if your dick wants to have fun, your dick is going to have to adapt. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old gay dude from Canada, and I have a question about open relationships. I've been with my boyfriend for a year, and since the beginning, we've been in an open relationship, but I've never taken advantage of this fact until recently. I've never been in an open relationship before. My boyfriend has several friends with benefits, and it took me a while to get used to him sleeping with other people. Recently, I've made friends with a couple, and we've hung out a couple times, and my boyfriend is really interested in meeting them. And I don't know how I feel about that. We've always talked about threesomes or moresomes with others, but we've never done that. And for the time being, it feels kind of nice to have something that's my own outside of the relationship. It's fun and exciting. How do I tell him that without offending him? And am I being selfish for wanting a thing that's my own? Eventually, it'd be cool if all four of us could be friends and play together especially since it's not really possible with most of his friends because they're not my type. I could really use some advice on this, Dan. So you go to your boyfriend and you say, you know, you've had friends with benefits. We've had a, you know, open relationship uh, in theory and for you in practice for a long time, but I haven't been with anyone else this entire time um, because I don't have the self-confidence, because I don't have the friends with benefits, because no one really appeared on the horizon or my radar that I wanted to get with. And so here are these two guys. And you know what? For the strength and health of our relationship going forward, I kind of need to explore this on my own. I kind of need to see that I can do this too. And so for right now, I need these guys to be for me. Doesn't mean I won't down the road want to share, but I'm, you're worried. 
breaking into your monologue here, caller, you're worried that he will perceive you to be selfish, so throw that on the table. You say to him, going on, so what I'd like to do is just to be a little selfish for right now and keep these guys for me. Um, and that's ultimately to your long-term benefit because if we're going to make our relationship work and the openness work, I need to get more secure and more comfortable. Um, and I need to know that I can do this the way you've been doing it, like solo and on my own a little bit and, and feel that I have you and our connection and our bond and I have my sexual independence and autonomy too, just as you have had. So for right now, let me have my thing with this couple on my own and I will talk dirty to you about it. I'll report back home about it. I'll tell you about it. Uh, and if, as I get more secure and more comfortable, maybe we can have that foursome uh, and maybe with this couple down the road that we've talked about. You're worried, again, that he's going to think you're being selfish. So just admit that you're being selfish. And then if he can't let you have this for yourself in the same way he's had his FWBs for himself, then who's really being selfish? Not you, him. Right? So you can turn that selfishness charge back around on him if you need to go there, if you need to play games. If this does become some sort of weird tug of war where you say, I admit I'm being selfish. And wanting these two for me for right now, can you not see how selfish you're being that you can't allow me to have this for myself in the same way you've been allowed to have these other guys for yourself? So just back the fuck off and chill the fuck out. And that foursome may be in our future, but for right now, it's going to be a threesome and it's just going to be for me. Some. Hello, this is a question for Dan Savage. I am a 30-year-old male and I learned uh, recently – uh, that my father, who is now deceased, uh, was very sexually abusive uh, towards uh, members of my family, in particular my mother and my sister. And I've identified myself sexually early on as kind of sadistic, but in a consensual way. I got into the kink scene, and these are things that I feel identify me uh, sexually. Not completely, but in my sexual sphere. And I find that it's hard for me to have a relationship without instances of, you know, kink and BDSM. Uh, that said, I'm concerned if my interests or my kinks have a correlation back to my father. And if so, what does that do with me now? And am I fucked up because my dad was fucked up? It turns out that some of the things my dad was interested in correlated to some of the things that I'm interested in now. And that really bothers me. And I'm not sure what your opinion is, and I'd like to know. Let's imagine that your father, uh, you found out later in life, was a serial rapist who had violated many women, uh, attacked many women, raped many women, uh, had raped your mother, marital rape, it's a thing. Uh, some men, too, had raped your mother. And all he did when he raped women was have missionary position vaginal penetrative sex with them against their will. Uh, and let's say you are a completely vanilla heterosexual man and missionary position penetrative vaginal intercourse was your favorite thing, was your only thing. That's how vanilla you were. Would it be ruined for you to discover that that was what your father had done in the context of all of these rapes? Probably not because the difference would be consent. Your father did missionary position penetrative vaginal intercourse in the absence of consent. That's what made it rape. That's what made him a terrible person. If your father was that kind of rapist, uh, what makes you not a terrible person is you do the exact same thing that your father did vaginal penetration, missionary, uh, vaginal intercourse, but you do it 
in a context with consent. And consent is what makes it not rape. Consent is the magic ingredient. Consent is the crucial and most important differential between what your father did in violating all those women and what you do in pleasing and pleasuring all those women that you sleep with. So let's look at this violence, sexual sadism, uh, you know, power exchange, dom sub to do any of that absent consent is rape and violence and sexual abuse uh, and is not okay to do that in a context with consent, just as with vaginal intercourse, consent, the magic ingredient makes it, Okay, makes it to consenting adults who are pleasing and pleasuring each other. Even if from the outside, those things may look incidentally similar. Jumping back to the metaphor, your father, the rapist, having vaginal intercourse with some woman against her will, and you, the not rapist, having vaginal intercourse with some woman with her consent, her enthusiastic consent. From the outside, just a snapshot looks very similar. You just showed someone two Polaroids of your father and you doing the exact same thing. People might not be able to tell the difference. But the difference, again, is consent. And so that your father engaged in some behaviors that overlap with some of the things that you enjoy doing in the context of a consensual, mutually pleasurable sexual experience, encounter, relationship is irrelevant. All that said, people with tough challenging, edgy, dangerous sexual desires need to be thoughtful about them. You do need to think it through. You do need to be introspective. I think it's a good sign. If there was something wrong with you, you wouldn't be having this conversation with yourself. You wouldn't be trying to figure out where the line is between who you are and who your father is if you weren't thoughtful. So you're doing what needs to be done. Like someone with a challenging sexual interest, someone with really dark sexual desires, that person needs to approach them with some fear and loathing, with some trepidation and having thought them through thoroughly so that you are not abusing anyone. You need to think very deeply about what consent is and what consent isn't. You need to think very deeply about whether consent is true uh, in the moment, whether they're, whether someone is offering you their consent from a very damaged place or whether their consent is coming from a healthy place and approach your desires and realizing them with respect for the gravity of the situation, right? You, you know, consensual vanilla sex gone a little wrong, a little awkward, nah, you know, a, a bad sexual experience that maybe people regret or feel squicky about later. And people probably won't be too particularly traumatized by a bad sexual consensual encounter that involves uh, bondage or dom sub or sadism, even negotiated out. If that goes south a little bit, that can be really scary and traumatizing and upsetting and not just for the bottom. And so that needs to be tiptoed up to. That needs to be carefully negotiated and thought through. You need to proceed with baby steps. You need to establish trust. You need to really be able to read someone and to be read by that person. So consent matters and it is the magic ingredient and it changes everything. But the higher up you are on the trapeze, the higher that high wire the stronger a net, the more careful you need to be, the more thoughtful you need to be, the more skilled you need to be, the more competent you need to be, and that you're having this debate with yourself points in the direction of skill and competence and that kind of thoughtfulness that is going to protect your partners and you 
as you do the things that you enjoy and they enjoy together consensually, which is what makes you not a monster, makes you not your father. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to cover something that uh, broke in the news. A couple of weeks ago on the front page of the New York Times is a big article about the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta issuing a recommendation that all people at risk for HIV infection start Truveda, which is a drug that can significantly reduce uh, the odds that someone uh, who may be exposed to HIV actually getting infected by HIV. And there's a huge controversy that's sort of boiling up in the gay community. Andrew Sullivan is very much in the pro-Truveda camp. Uh, Larry Kramer, uh, some other AIDS activist types are against it. Peter Staley's for it. Uh, there's accusations that people are going to take Truveda to stop using condoms and there are countercharges or not countercharges, a counter argument that a lot of people aren't using condoms anyway and Truveda will make them safer. I have to admit that a couple years ago when I first began reading about the Truveda and the Truveda studies, I was a bit of a Truveda skeptic myself. To help us clarify uh, the whole issue about Truveda and whether or not uh, you should be taking it or whether or not you should be on it if you're at risk for HIV exposure, Dr. Jared Baton, he's a professor of global health medicine at the University of Washington. He also led one of the large trials, one of the studies that showed that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylactics, which is what Truveda is. It's a PrEP drug worked to prevent HIV infection. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Dr. Brayton. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So what do my listeners, uh, and I'm shocked, you know, I was just out the other night and I knew we were going to talk. So I just asked a few gay friends in their twenties, uh, very sexually active, uh, you know, at very high risk, although they think they're at no risk for HIV exposure. But what we know from the epidemiology, young sexually active gay men are actually at very high risk. Uh, what they thought about Truveda and not one of them had even heard of it. So what do my listeners who do not know what Truveda is, who haven't been following the controversy, uh, need to know about this drug? Great, great, and that's I think one of the one of the most important things that we have to do with um, understanding of this new HIV prevention strategy is have this kind of dialogue and discussion because, as you found in your in your anecdotes the other night, people don't know men who are at potential risk of getting HIV here, their doctors or other providers, and other people don't know this this exists. So until there's the ability to have the discussion, there's not the ability to talk about uh, using or not using this for HIV prevention for, for each person who may want to use it and other ways to reduce their HIV risk. So the basics. Truvada is the brand name for two antiretrovirals or anti-HIV medications, tenofovir and emtricitabine, that are packaged together in one medication. This medication has been on the market for, uh, for a number of years now for the treatment of HIV infection and is very well used and well studied for treatment of HIV. Within the last few years, there's been some large scientific studies that have been done to assess whether Truvada could be used by people who don't have HIV yet as a prophylactic medication to prevent HIV. Someone who is at risk for in, the, in those studies and now in the recommendations from the CDC, persons at risk take this medication every day during the periods in their life when they'd be at risk for HIV infection. And by doing so, it would it, it significantly and substantially reduces the chances that if exposed to HIV, that the virus would take hold in somebody. I can make an analogy to, uh, it's, I think, for people who've traveled before to places where there's malaria infection, for example, many, many people take prophylaxis against malaria infection. 
pill every day to prevent the, to prevent the malaria parasite from taking hold in someone if they happen to be exposed. It's exactly that same kind of idea. We use this idea of prophylaxis a lot to ward off infectious diseases, and now it's been demonstrated that it works for something really serious, HIV infection. Now, the, the studies that found that, that ver- this provided significant protection against HIV pr- uh, infection, that was with perfect compliance, having to take a daily pill every day. And typically people aren't perfectly compliant when it comes to birth control. We know that there's imperfect compliance with women who are supposed to be taking the birth control pill every day. Uh, that's why there are high failure rates for some forms of uh, birth control pr- methods. You know, it's why condoms are, are, are hugely effective when used perfectly, but then you have to look at imperfect use. And I believe the failure rate is something like 18% with imperfect use. Uh, If Truveda works this effectively with perfect use, and we know that people don't tend to adhere to drug regimens perfectly, is it a danger potentially to, to put this out there? I mean, it's out there and and it provides significant protection, but will it protect people if they don't use it correctly? And we know people won't. Many people won't. So will it provide a false sense of security for some? Well, then you're absolutely right that that um, this medication doesn't work if it's not taken. And uh, you know, which I guess you could say about any medication. That's true for every medication. Medications live on your shelf and aren't taken. They don't provide any of the medical benefits that they would that they would need. Um, This medication was demonstrated in large clinical studies in multiple kinds of populations. In in gay men and transgender women, in, in heterosexual women and men, and in injection drug users, so many different populations of people who are at risk of HIV infection, to prevent against HIV. And on the order of preventing 90% or more of HIV when taken really well. Now, there's a lot of questions about how take, how taken really, what taken really well means. There's some evidence from some of these studies, especially the studies in, in gay men, that, um, that the degree of HIV protection may be, still be high if people aren't absolutely perfect. That allows people to be, that there is some ability for people to be uh, taking it as well as they can, taking it as well as they can daily, but have, but potentially miss a few doses and still be quite well protected. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this would be a discussion that every, that every person, if they're interested in taking this, needs to have with their doctor and needs to work to make sure that the medication is, gets into their body because not taking it at all obviously provides no protection and certainly should provide no false sense of protection. Now, when I said I was a skeptic earlier, when I first read the initial burst of studies in 2012, uh, what kind of stuck out at me uh, was I was hearing that, oh, here's a drug that means you don't have to use condoms anymore, and it's really effective. And when I read the studies, the the people being studied were using the drug in conjunction with condoms and regular HIV uh, prevention counseling and regular testing, not just taking the drug and wandering off for the rest of their life and doing whatever the fuck they wanted to do. And my dubiousness was rooted in that fact that, you know, people who go in for regular testing, people going for regular HIV education counseling tend to be better advocates for their own uh, personal safety, tend to use condoms more frequently. And was the drug getting credit for a benefit that the condoms were providing people with? Were the, was the drug getting credit for preventions of HIV infections that ultimately were about people using condoms more than they had before they went into the study. But that's not true. Right. That, that is not true. But I think you are absolutely right in that PrEP using, using Stravata medication is part of a prevention package. Getting PrEP means getting tested for HIV. 
periodically. The recommendation is oh, wait, wait, but, okay. Before we go into that, like the right. reason we know now it's not true is that there are people in other big studies who took the Truveda alone without using condoms. Uh, these were mostly heterosexual couples and didn't use any other form of protection, and it provided what, 90-plus percent uh, protection for those folks who weren't using condoms. So it wasn't that the drug was getting credit for uh, infections that the condoms prevented. The drugs were actually preventing the infections. Correct. This medication prevented HIV and infection in people who were choosing not to, or choosing or were unable to use condoms. And, and in the, the clinical studies, both in heterosexuals and in gay men, there's been plenty of analyses to, show, to control for the use of condoms and say over and above people doing their very best on condoms or when people were not using condoms, this medication was providing high-level HIV protection when it was taken. So as a healthcare professional, how does it make you feel? How does it sit with you when you do hear people say, I'm going to use Truveda so I can stop using condoms? It's absolutely a question that comes up a lot. And I think the, the, you know, the question written more broadly is, will, will people using PrEP increase their sexual risk-taking? Stop, stop, stop using condoms as a result of taking PrEP. And I think that there's sort of several lines of evidence that says that maybe that's not the whole question. Like you brought up, one of the populations who, for whom PrEP would have the greatest benefit is for people who aren't already using condoms. Mm-hmm. And or who find condom who find condom use difficult are unable to no, negotiate condom use themselves because of because of relationship power or other reasons. Right. And or who are choosing not to use condoms, and this provides backup protection when they're not able to do it. Second, there's really good evidence from the at least the large clinical trials of PrEP that that PrEP work together with ongoing counseling and risk reduction HIV testing to reduce people's sexual risk-taking over time. And there is something quite powerful about going in for HIV testing every three months that also can be reducing risk while someone's taking PrEP. So there may be synergy there in getting that ongoing testing and that counseling while someone is getting PrEP. Okay, what about, you know, the other issue for me uh, is that I know well, two things. Uh, HIV infection isn't the only sexually transmitted infection out there that people have to worry about. There's a syphilis epidemic among gay and bisexual men. There's a, it's, there's a new strain of gonorrhea that's resistant to all forms of treatment that's popping up in Asia and now Europe. Uh, we also know, because of what happened in the 70s and the 80s, that the emergence of a hitheretofore unknown, fatal, sexually transmitted infection is something that can happen. So if the focus is entirely on this solves the HIV infection problem, so, you know, I don't want to say anything goes. I don't want to, like, buy into the moralism and, you know, the, the, the people who aren't using condoms should be punished because I certainly don't believe that. Terry and I haven't used condoms for 18 years uh, in the context of our relationship. Um, so I, I don't believe that you, you must and have to use condoms and condoms are the be-all and end-all. But – HIV isn't the be-all and end-all when you talk about sexually transmitted infections. There are others, including others we may not know about. And will does Truveda cr- create a false sense of security and, and not increase you know, risk-taking among guys who already aren't using condoms, but increase the potential for the next – lay out the welcome mat for the next HIV or make the already existing syphilis epidemic worse? And I think that's part of, what, that's part of us all figuring out together how to make Truveda prep – 
have an impact out in the out in the community because it is part of having these conversations about reducing risk and using Truvada as part of the the risk reduction that that we're all trying to do to reduce to reduce HIV and all and other sexually transmitted diseases altogether. Truvada works together with risk reduction with con- with increasing condoms increasing talking about reducing one's risk to try to reduce the the chances of getting HIV and syphilis and gonorrhea and whatever else might come out there. But I think but putting a block uh, putting a block to Truvada because it might increase risk taking. Same argument as you said might be put against might be put against condoms themselves and there are, mm-hmm. and reverting then to not having sex at all. Right, it is the same argument the religious right makes. If we do sex education, it's going to put sex in people's head. People are going to have sex. We don't want people having sex. I'm not. I'm certainly not sex negative. Uh, and considering the benefits of Truvada, considering its effectiveness. Um, you know, the, 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 the mounting pile of research, I back the CDC. I agree with the CDC's recommendation. I think people should be on Truveda. I, you know, I'm a worry ward. I have my mother's uh, disease. Terry calls it worst case scenario syndrome, where just whatever's happening, I'm always obsessed about the worst possible potential outcome. And I worry about there being potential downsides to Truveda. But I recognize that the upside to Truveda is so enormous that the downsides couldn't be, you know, couldn't outweigh it. But we need to be cognizant of them, that there may be increased risk-taking. It won't be greater uh, rates of HIV infection that are a consequence of the greater risk-taking. But we may see a worsened syphilis epidemic if we're not talking about that as a potential negative outcome of Truveda becoming more commonplace uh, and more accepted as it should be. But we need to be cognizant that there's other shit going on and, and addressing those concurrent risks. You're absolutely right, and I think one thing that one thing that I hope is that opening the conversation and starting uh, and starting a conversation with with men, um, for for example, in the United States, who would be interested in taking Truvada, is getting them into care and getting them into discussions about it, about risk reduction, and by engaging in care regularly, reducing their chances of getting a, of getting HIV. And, and certainly with, with use of Truvada would, and also reducing their chance of getting STDs or because they're engaged in care regularly, get the, getting those STDs promptly treated so they're not having adverse consequences for them or being passed on to other people. So where online would you send someone if it's somebody out there listening wants to know more about Truvada, wants to know more about the drugs, more about the trials, more about the studies, the research, uh, where should they start? Where should they go? Clearly the CDC. Go to the CDC's website, look up Truvada. Anywhere else? Right. CDC's website is a great resource, and talk and talk to your doctor. And if your doctor and if your and if your doctor or your nurse practitioner uh, gives you gives you a blank stare or a judging look, talk. Get them to talk to somebody who's going to who's going to help them figure out whether this is right for them. And your recommendation to my listeners who may be at risk, gay and bisexual men, their partners, uh, people doing sex work. Your recommendation to them as a healthcare professional would be: This offers a powerful, tested potential option for people who are at risk of HIV to, to take control into their own hands about reducing their HIV risk and pre- preventing them from getting this lifelong infection through taking, through taking pills for a time in their life when they would want to reduce their risk. And I would only add that there are other sexually transmitted infections you should also be concerned about. Absolutely. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Dr. Jared Baton, professor of global health and medicine at the University of Washington. And he also led one of the large trials that showed that PrEP including Truveda, works to prevent HIV. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old lesbian living in New York. For the past seven months, I've been visiting this really wonderful, smart, sexy, beautiful, hilarious woman 
who about three months before we started dating had been dumped by her girlfriend of 10 years. And she warned me when we started dating that she was going to need to be single for a while at some point and date other people and make mistakes and date around. Um, she's gotten to that point now. She, she, she wants to break up and see other people now. And in the last seven months, I've fallen completely in head over heels in love with her. And she says she loves me too, but she's not. She says she can't make a commitment until she feels she has questions she needs to answer and mistakes that she needs to make. And so even though she and I both love each other, we she's decided that we're going to break up. So I go on vacation with my mother this weekend indefinitely and uh because she's going to date other people and might fall to one of those other people and so I can't I can't wait for her. But while she was in a ten year relationship, I've been single for the last four years and she's the best thing that's happened in my life for so long <laughs> and is the most compatible woman I've ever dated who want the same things in life where the sex is amazing. And I don't want to let this woman go. I feel like I've I've dated so many people in New York and not wanted to be in a relationship with any of them. And I finally find one that I do, and she she feels broken. Um, so my question is, I don't know what to do next because she does she does still love me. And so do I? How do, do I cut off contact and treat this like any other breakup and hope that maybe in six months she'll call me back having not talked to her? Or can I continue to be there as a friend and talk to her but not hear about her dating life? This sucks. And I don't want to lose her. You don't want to lose her as a friend, but you also don't want to give her something that she's no longer entitled to, which is not necessarily your friendship, but your presence, uh, the intimacy uh, that you two share, uh, your love and affection. I, I hate to break relationships down into some sort of uh, you know, exchange of commodities, but at some level there is uh, an exchange that goes on, a, a quid pro quo, a, a basic swapping of – romantic goods and services and if she can get from you you know the love the affection the support um while also no longer being your girlfriend which is what you want uh, and she's free to date others and then you have to witness that or hold her hand through that or hear her out about it or hang out with her on sunday morning brunch and hear about her weekend that doesn't create an absence in her life or a, a, a wanting or, or something she's missing in the same way that the end of the relationship creates an absence and a wanting and a missing in your life. Um, there's something you want from her, which is the relationship that you've had for the last seven months. And there's something that she may want from you, which is your continued presence and love and support. And at some point you really do have to draw a line and say, you know, there's a way I want to be wanted by you. Uh, and I want to be wanted by you as a lover and a girlfriend and a partner. I don't want to be wanted by you as a friend. And so I don't think I can give you my friendship in exchange for the consolation prize of your friendship because I love you romantically and it will kill me to watch you date other people and give to them what you are taking from me. So I'm going to go away. 
And I really think for your own mental health, that's the best choice. It does mean cutting her out of your life. Who knows? If while she's dating around, she meets and falls in love with and runs off with someone else, that was going to happen whether you were hanging out and being her friend. Right? At least if you're not hanging out and being her friend, you don't have to hear the blow by blow and you don't have to be an eyewitness to that happening. You are being replaced. But who knows? She may run out there and date around and realize that what she had with you was better than what she can have with anyone else. Perhaps the dating around will be a confirmation that what she has with you is something special and different and unique. Maybe she will realize its uniqueness only after comparison shopping a bit. She's been in a relationship for 10 years. She doesn't know how rare it is for someone that you're this compatible with romantically and largely to come along. Maybe dating around will make that clear to her. Maybe she will miss you. But she can't miss you if you didn't go away. She can't miss you if you haven't withdrawn from her. You want to say that you don't give to get, but you do. You do give a certain kind of emotional, sexual, romantic focus and attention to get the same in return. Right? You leverage the love out of someone with your own love and affection and time. And if you are romantically, sexually, everything else compatible, then it just like takes off and it works well. Like nothing works perfectly. And I don't want to see you sell yourself short. I don't want to see you give away the love and affection that you have to give in exchange for a friendship that is not what you want. Take that and give it to somebody else if she doesn't want it. And don't sell yourself short. Right now, you're terrorized by the thought as she dates around and she experiments that she will meet and fall in love with someone else. You know what? The same could happen for you. You could meet and fall in love with someone else. That it, you hadn't met anyone else but her that you felt this way about in four years is not proof that it'll be another four years until you meet somebody else that you can feel this way about. You could, be, you could meet somebody else you feel this deeply about tomorrow. Shit is that random. You never know. Send her on her way. Wish her the best of luck. Tell her you will pick up where you guys left it off when she's ready to commit to you romantically and emotionally. But until then, you're not going to be able to see her. Hello, Dan. I'm a straight 20-year-old in a committed four-year successful polyamorous relationship. My long-term partner is a few years younger than me. I recently started seeing a 20-year-old who has been only in only one relationship, which lasted five years. The night we went, met and hit it off, I told her about my partner, and she is open to it all. I have little concern about this because of her background. I am, however, concerned about the power dynamics because of our age. I already told her that I have thought about the age difference, and so has she, and that I wanted to be mindful of the power dynamics and that we would talk about it in a few weeks once our relationship establishes. She agreed. So what should we talk about? What can I do personally uh, to ensure that it goes as uh, smoothly as possible? And can you please expand on the subject in general? I think you need to re-ask the question because you said at the top of your question that you were 20, you've been in a four-year relationship with someone a few years younger. So you would have been starting to date your girlfriend when you were 16 and she was 13? So I'm 28 and I've been in a four-year committed relationship with my partner and I just started seeing a 20-year-old 
and I want to responsibly follow the good camper rule, not just when we break, not just if we break up and separate, mm-hmm. but while we're dating. And I'm looking for concrete things I can do proactively to make sure that the power dynamics, because of our age, do not do damage and, you know, do do good. Okay, so if you're familiar with the show, if you're familiar with me, have you heard of the campsite rule? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a long-time listener. Okay, leave them in better shape than you found them. That means no diseases, no unplanned pregnancies, no unnecessary heartbreak, right? Don't make promises that you know are unlikely to be kept. That if you're mm-hmm. – she's only 20, you're 28, you're in another relationship, the odds that you two will be together forever or the three of you will be together forever or some sort of poly triad are pretty slim. So you say to her – this is great for now. We'll, you know, let's be, we'll be good to you. We'll be kind to you. We expect the same in return. Whether this lasts for a year or two or the rest of our lives, we will always be friends. Let's shake on that now and avoid unnecessary mm-hmm. drama. And that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't create an immunity to drama, but it kind of inoculates you against it a little bit. Like when you make that kind of pledge at the outset, then when drama rears its ugly head or there are hurt feelings, people do look at each other and think, hey, we promised to get through this. We promised not to be shitty to each other, even if it didn't last forever. And to acknowledge that it probably won't, right, means you can't be hurt. Yeah. You can't and she can't when it doesn't. And don't assume – sexist man. Don't assume – I'm not saying you're sexist, but it's kind of a sexist assumption or informed by sexism that at 20 – and is she in college? What is she up to? Uh, she is not in school, no. She's moved out of her hometown, lived on the other side of the country, and now she's back. Okay. Well, don't assume um, that she wants more yeah. from you than – you're capable or willing to give. There may be a reason that she picked you. We had Hannah Rosen, author of The End of Men, on the show a couple of weeks ago, talking about the fact that a lot of young women don't want the commitment and the demands of a full-time boyfriend. So having a timeshare boyfriend in you might be exactly what she needs at this stage of her life. Mm-hmm. Less commitment, less heavy lifting. She's not the only one draining your sack. More time for whatever it else is that she's doing, right? Because you're uh-huh. not her sole responsibility relationship-wise. Yeah. I'm a little afraid for myself that I had a previous relationship where I was far more into them and I called them more and I never gave them a chance to call me. And <laughs> I'm going to repeat, you know, the same mistakes and then get the resentment of, you know, I don't, what if I don't hear from them? But, you know, of course, don't. Uh, I don't want to make I, – I don't want to assume that she – don't be a sixteen-year-old. Yeah, yeah. You're you're allowed to be. You're allowed to be excited. Like it's new. What is it? New relationship energy. That's what the poly folks call it. New. Re- you can say I sort of feel uh, kind of bubbly. New relationship energy here. I, I apologize in advance if I text you a little too much, but I tend to do that mm-hmm. when I'm excited about. Yeah, she says she hates phones. She hates phones. And I don't want to bring this up. To I'm I'm uh, a little hesitant to bring up a discussion about power dynamics because I don't want to destroy the new relationship energy. So you're hesitant to bring up a discussion of what? I'm hesitant. I don't want to bring up the discussion about power dynamics too soon or uh, pow- things about poly- uh, uh, power schmauer. You're 28. She's 20. That's not like you're Donald Trump and a billionaire and she's a 17 year old model. The power gap there is not vast and overwhelming. You may be a little more experienced. Uh-huh. You may be a little bit older, pushing 30. She's had one five-year relationship. She knows her way around relationships some. Mm-hmm. Don't assume that she's some naif just because she's yeah. a girl who happens to be a 20-year-old adult woman. Mm-hmm. 
So just commit to the campsite rule. You can make that explicit. You know, we're probably not yeah. going to be together forever. That's true of any relationship. Most people who get into any new relationship at all, most relationships, you have one in your life. Hopefully that's forever. And you have a lot of other ones, which means the majority of relationships that happen in the course of all of human history are temporary. People break up. People separate. People get divorced. Most of our relationships are not going to be all of our lives relationships. Just acknowledge that at the outset and say we're going to – eventually I'm going to dismount you and so let's stick the dismount if and when that time comes by shaking on it now while we're still so excited about knowing each other and I'm going to commit to leaving you in better shape than I found you and you make the same commitment because that kind of considerate treatment goes both ways and let's enjoy this time. Let's enjoy this time. And then stop thinking about the power dynamic. Are you a billionaire? No, I'm far from it. Or do you have shitloads of money and she's starving no. on the street? Both of us are fun employed. Okay. Then you're more equal than not. Is it demeaning to use the term campsite rule? Or like to bring this up to her in this way that I could leave her in worse or leave her in better? And of course, she could do the same to me. Everything's potentially but. demeaning depending on how you look at it. I don't know. Why would the campsite rule be demeaning? Because you're a campsite. You're a piece of flat, pounded dirt in the middle of the forest preserve. How is it demeaning to say, let's honor the campsite rule? I mean, the campsite rule is just kind of a joke. The, camp, the campsite rule for campers is leave the campsite in better shape than you found it. My version of the campsite rule for lovers is leave that person in better shape than you found them. I don't think there's anything demeaning about committing to leaving someone in better shape than you found them. Yeah. I think that's honoring that other person and acknowledging your responsibilities in addition to having fun and fucking around and getting your rocks just, off and getting her off. We're also going to be better people at the end of this relationship if indeed this relationship ever ends. Uh -huh. Articulating those things early makes those things likelier to come true. I just don't want to kill, I don't want to kill the initial excitement though with serious discussions either. Then don't. Commit to the campsite rule in your soul and don't have a convo about it. Unless you're concerned about the power dynamic or you think she's concerned about it, you really don't have to directly address it. You can just be a good person. Uh-huh. I don't have to talk about it with her? Not necessarily. If you think it's going to queer the sort of new relationship energy sort of fun fuck fest stage right now to have a serious sit-down, hand-ringy conversation about power dynamics, no, you don't have to talk about it. Uh-huh. I just think I just like was looking at it as like that's what I had to do to be responsible and like transparent. So I like try to embrace the idea of radical honesty and being completely open. And well, I'm not I'm not into radical honesty or being completely open. Uh huh. I think dishonesty and lies are a solid foundation, the solid foundation uh -huh. on which most relationships are built. Mm -hmm. That's weird. <laughs> I know it is weird, and, and you're taking my advice, which is like even weirder. You know, it's, you know, it's just like going for gold in a stream. You know, you let a lot of stuff pass and you grab <laughs> pick some stuff up. It was nice talking to you, man. Good luck with all the pussy on your hands. Okay. Darn. Good luck, man. Yes, hi. This is in response to the woman who um, was upset about her boyfriend having a mug with the girlfriend's picture on it. I just wanted to tell her that I personally have an entire box in my garage of paraphernalia from my first marriage, and my current boyfriend uh, had two filing cabinets in the garage uh, full of paraphernalia of his first marriage. So, yeah, get over it. You're lucky it's not two filing cabinets full of stuff. 
Hi, Dan. Longtime squirter here in response to episode 397 with the woman who, or the crazy boyfriend who wasn't sure if his girlfriend was lying about uh, water and squirting. In my experience, it does make a big difference. Uh, in fact, my boyfriend loves it so much that when I'm feeling uh, nice, I drink a couple of extra glasses of water and you definitely notice results. Hi, Dan. I totally fucked my professor in college. And not only did I fuck my professor, but I fucked her girlfriend at the same time. And it was awesome. Thanks for asking. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech heavy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.